Welcome to East Lansing Crime Warp, a podcast hosted by myself, Hannah Brock, and my co-host, Maddie Monroe. Each week, we'll update you on current crime, and then we'll take you back to a crime blast from the past. Thank you for listening, and stay tuned. Today, we will be discussing the murder of an MSU student from the 1980s. But before we get into it, there's a few updates on current crime we want to discuss. Our co-workers Joe Dandron and Sarah Tidwell will be joining us today to talk about a few current crime updates. So Joe, can you talk to us a little bit about the new East Lansing Police Department chief, his background, and when he'll start his position? So um, on Tuesday evening, which, you know, I think this had obviously probably been in the works for a while, and the city manager of East Lansing, George Lahanis, who handled the process of finding a, a um, you know, new police chief, BLPD. Steve Gonzalez was the interim. Um, and so he announced during the city council meeting, during his city manager um, note, that they had found one. And I was, I did not know that that was going to happen um, that night. The new ELPD police chief is Kim Johnson. Um, and Kim Johnson is, he, um, had been with the department starting in 1982 until 2012. He left in 2012. He went from being just a patrol officer in the 80s all the way up until becoming um, captain of the department. And then he stepped away in 2012, was actually in the running for the chief of Ypsilanti PD at one point in 2013. And then I think he kind of took, you know, hung up the badge, decided to take a step away. Um, you know, he I haven't had a chance to talk to Johnson yet. He, um, hasn't really been available, and he's not really able to talk until it's official on October 5th. So Larry Sparks is who he is replacing fully. Larry Sparks was the chief of police, stepped down in 2019, um, or 2020, early 2020, I believe, mm-hmm. and that's when Gonzalez stepped in. Also recently, East Lansing Police Department hired social workers in place of a few of their full-time officer employees. Can you talk to us a little bit about that and what went into that decision? Police departments, forces, whatever you want to say, all over the country are being looked at and analyzed when it comes at the budget. You know, how they operate, training, all of these different things are being analyzed and looked at as to how law enforcement can be most effective and also have a good relationship with a community. Um, social workers can now replacing two full-time officer positions, which you know, I spoke to an MSU professor, Glenn Stutsky, who has at one worked with police departments in his own professional life as a social worker, um, who, and he handles now primarily counseling veterans. But he, you know, talked about the ability of social workers to diffuse situations and, you know, diffuse situations and also handle nonviolent situations, non-aggressive situations. You know, mm-hmm. social workers that are working with the LPD are, according to a plan that was put up by the city the city manager formulated a plan for a lot of reform within elpd um that plan kind of cited why social workers should be in there after talking with aaron stevens the mayor he said you know it's putting the priorities of our community is what our number one priority like the priority of our community is public safety and that's our priority and they thought that this could contribute to that thank you joe now let's turn it over to sarah to talk about the brianna taylor case Well, I wondered if you could tell us a little about the recent developments with the Breonna Taylor case, um, what the final verdict was, and what the reaction from the East Lansing community has been like. Yeah, of course. So it took six months and 10 days 
uh, to get some sort of justice for Breonna Taylor, and it ended up not even really being justice. So basically, the grand jury didn't find that Hengis and Wonton only fired into Taylor's apartment the night she died, or that any of the officers are criminally liable in her death. And then, talking to some of the community members in East Lansing and Lansing, uh, three of the ones I talked to were actually big names in the protests over the summer. So mm-hmm. Paul Birdsong, um, James Henson, and then Farhan, it's like Sheik Omar, something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so basically, I talked to all three of them. They all had similar kind of feelings and disappointment, very angry at the decision. Some of them were kind of like shocked. They were like, oh my God, like this actually happened. Like they actually charged the guy because some of them thought they weren't, he wasn't going to charge them. Mm-hmm. Um, so basically like, this is what Paul Birdsong said. He said, well, I don't understand the charges. Police officers, you know, more than one went into a house and murdered somebody in their sleep. They should have been charged with first-degree murder, minimum first-degree manslaughter. And then he kind of compared it. He was like, if, you know, if me and three other people broke into a house and murdered somebody in their sleep, they'd all get charged with the worst. So first-degree mm-hmm. murder. Um, he said, you know, even those of us that didn't pull the trigger, they get charged with accessories because they broke into the house. Mm-hmm. They get charged with unlawful entry. He basically was just like, you know, what the hell does wanton endangerment have to do with somebody being shot? Like, there's literally no equality in the United States. Because mm-hmm. as soon as someone puts on a badge, they're allowed to get away with things like murder. And mm-hmm. he was referring to, you know, Henderson getting off with those charges. James Henson, the leader of the Young Black Panther Party, uh, he, he said, you know, it shows how much cops got each other's backs, no matter what, even if they do something very wrong. And he was like, you know, this case is still sad, but it's been happening for decades. And mm-hmm. he helps to, you know, reach out to organizations, whether Black Lives Matter, whether LGBTQ, and plan for their future in order to properly protect the next generation because he's very, very worried about all the kids that they're raising and even, you know, the current people in the populations and the communities. Well, thank you so much, Sarah, for um, coming on and talking to us. I really appreciate it. Yeah, of course. That's it for current crime this week. Now it's time for the crime of the past. 23-year-old Sandra Clark was a Michigan State University student studying mathematics during the summer semester of 1986. Clark was struggling with a difficult engineering class. However, she called her mother to say she had found help and decided not to drop the subject. The following day, she was reported missing. This case really, uh, really messed me up. I I think that it's so creepy because... I mean, Sandra's only four years older than us. Right. Also, she would have been a freshman at this point. Um, So, you know, I'm a sophomore and Hannah is a junior. Right. And so we've already kind of been at that point of struggling with the class and not quite knowing where to go. And what to do about it. Right. Sandra was reported missing by her boyfriend, Mark McClarty, who became concerned after she did not show up to a study session with another classmate. In the following two days, her car would be found in downtown Lansing, deserted and bloodstained, and her body crushed under anywhere from 15 to 20 feet of garbage in the Lansing landfill. According to Sandra's boyfriend, Mark, she was last seen going to meet with Darasal Henry for a tutoring session. Darasal was a 20-year-old MSU student majoring in pre-electrical engineering. He was described as quiet, and strange by an anonymous neighbor who lived two doors down from him in their apartment building. She said he had few visitors, even though he lived by himself, and would often play his music loudly in his apartment. She also described a strange encounter with Darasal, 
while she was walking out of the building, she said he startled her as he suddenly jumped out and said, Hi, can I help you with something? Even though the two had rarely interacted with each other. Which I find weird because what what did he jump out from? Was it behind a wall? A car? Right. A bush? I'm not sure <laughs> if... I'm just trying to picture like an apartment building. Right. Like you're walking down the hallway. Like did he like jump out of his apartment door? I don't know. I mean... I just think it's strange. I, it might just be the wording of what I read, but it it just doesn't make sense... I guess we would have had to be there right. to understand what she what she meant. Alright, back to the story. After police found Clark's body, they approached Jarosel. He said Sandra never showed up to the tutoring session. However, upon a second visit to Darcel's Spartan Village apartment, they noticed a large amount of blood stains in the parking lot. The stains were covered by a parked vehicle on the police's first visit. Darcel was not at the apartment when the police arrived, but after finding the blood in the parking lot, Police quickly obtained a search warrant for his apartment. Police found multiple knives in the apartment, which were sent to the Michigan State Police Lab to be tested if they had been used on Sandra. It certainly appeared that somebody tried to clean up the apartment after the killing, Ingham County Prosecutor Don Martin said. Sheets and a pillow in Darasol's apartment had been scrubbed to remove blood stains as well as his bed. Darasol had placed a new set of sheets over scrubbed old ones to cover the blood-stained half of his mattress. Sandra's 1984 Plymouth Colt was found near downtown Lansing two days after she went missing, with blood on the door handle and in the back seat. Employees at the Michigan Refrigerating and Warehouse Company, located only a few miles away from Darcel's apartment, reported noticing bloodstains on a loading dock of a garbage dumpster where police believe Sandra's body was transported by a garbage truck to the landfill where her body was later found. And that confuses me, because... I mean, who knows, maybe it was a Friday, maybe nobody came into work the next day, but how are you working at a loading dock and you don't see, smell a body? Right, you don't notice anyone dropping off a body in the dumpster? Like, I mean, I, I get it if it was late at night and nobody was there, but I feel like you would immediately notice blood and call the police it took them two days to find her car right which means in those two days nobody thought to check out the blood in the parking lot of the loading dock clark's body was later found partially dressed however an autopsy could not determine if she was sexually assaulted clark had died from multiple stab wounds to the chest she also sustained neck slashes. Darcel Henry was charged with an open count of murder after the second visit to his campus apartment. However, no motive could be determined. He did not appear at his arraignment, but an innocent plea was entered on his behalf. He was held in Ingham County Jail until his preliminary examination, which was delayed so the defense could have more time to review the case. I think it's important to note here that, according to the Britannica Encyclopedia, DNA evidence was not used until the late 80s and early 90s in investigations. So, at the time of Sandra's murder, evidence was collected based on blood type, not DNA evidence. 
And this kind of posed an interesting point in the case because Sandra was a Jehovah's Witness and her religion prohibited her from ever having a blood test. Um, and so we kind of looked into that a little bit. According to PBS, Jehovah's Witnesses refused to take in blood or its major components for religious reasons. They believe that blood is sacred and should only be used as God designates. Witnesses base their position on an interpretation of biblical texts that prohibit the taking of blood into the body for the purpose of sustaining the body's functions. Um, so this kind of made it difficult for forensic scientists to identify her blood type and therefore use blood stains as evidence. And this is kind of where it gets a little confusing. We're not really sure how they determined her blood type, but they did. Darcel was then bound over for trial, but this is where the case hits a standstill. Darcel underwent psychiatric evaluation at a local forensic center. He was deemed incompetent and therefore could not be formally tried. A Flint Journal article explained Darcel understood the charges against him. However, he was unable to help his attorney build a defense. At the time of his incompetency determination, his psychiatrist had tentatively diagnosed him with schizophrenia. She said Darcel would be able to withstand trial within 15 months. After his 15-month treatment, Darcel stood trial and was sentenced to life in prison without parole. A month earlier, he had pled guilty to first-degree murder. Before his sentencing, Darcel apologized to Sanders' family. And this is interesting, because prior to this, the police couldn't determine a motive. All they had to go on was forensic evidence or forensic blood type evidence at this time since DNA wasn't used yet. But at the trial, a motive was finally identified. Darcel admitted that he murdered Sandra as a result of an uncontrollable emotional outburst. He said Sandra's mannerisms reminded him of his ex-girlfriend, Connie. According to a Flint Journal article, Darcel said, all the stress from Connie came back. I stood up in a rage, saw the knife, and knocked her to the floor. According to Darcel's attorney, he had hallucinations as a child, and his family did not seek treatment due to his religious background. At his 1988 trial, Darcel's attorney considered appealing his conviction to second-degree murder for possible parole. Today, Darcel Henry is still fulfilling his life sentence without parole in Gus Harrison Correctional Facility in Adrian, Michigan. He is 54 years old. I think overall this case is really, it's really sad, especially with the two of us who both are women in college. And I can think of many times when I've been in similar scenarios um, gone to meet with a tutor or some people I met in a class and it just kind of furthers that thought process of you never know who you're dealing with. Right, because I think we always think, okay, this other person is a student. Right. So they're not a danger to me. Right. We see, when we think of a criminal or we think of a scary person, they're right. not someone who is studying with us. Right and going to class with us right. and we've talked to them multiple times and they live in the same apartment buildings as us but as we see with the state of sexual assault at msu mm -hmm. i mean you monsters are around every corner right and that's what that's what freaks me out mm -hmm. definitely Alrighty, so stay safe spartans and thank you for listening yeah thank you all for joining us <laughs>